You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Happy New Year. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is Mr. Larry Reed. Many of you recognize Larry as a past guest here on RLA Radio. Uh, I caught up with Larry just before the holidays and uh, got his take on uh, a very interesting woman uh, in history uh, that we can all learn a lot from. And we'll also talk to Larry a bit about uh, what's driving this interest in socialism and uh, is there anything to it? Uh, you'll, you'll enjoy the conversation, so stay tuned. Larry will be joining me in segments two and three today. However, if you have an IRA or a 401k, you'll want to make sure to keep listening because the SECURE Act is now law. This law went into effect on New Year's Day, and we have been talking about it here on and off on RLA Radio. In fact, we told you uh, late summer, early fall here on the program that the SECURE Act had passed the House of Representatives by an unbelievably bipartisan margin. The vote was 417 votes in favor, three votes against. And then, in what seemed to be uh, something that would fly through the Senate, it simply stalled, only to be suddenly passed at year-end here in a spending package that funds the government through next year. And the spending package not only funded the government through, the, through next year, not the end of next year, but through next year, uh, it contained also eight new spending bills and spending of $1.4 trillion. $1.4 trillion in spending is another topic for another day. But included in this massive legislative action that the president has signed was something called the SECURE Act. So the SECURE Act is now law. And again, if you have an IRA or a 401k, you'll want to pay attention because it changes uh, things pretty significantly. Um, in fact, this is really considered to be the most um, widely sweeping change that has been made to retirement accounts since the Protection uh, Pension Protection Act rather was passed back in 2006. Now, the SECURE Act does contain some beneficial provisions. In fact, if you look at what SECURE is an acronym for, it is setting every community up for retirement enhancement. SECURE, setting every community up for retirement enhancement. And obviously, when you listen to that title, you think, wow, it's all good. But as is typical, it's not all good. For many IRA owners and many 401k owners, it's time to rethink their estate plans and it's time to rethink their beneficiary designations, as we'll talk about here on today's program. Now, let's look at how you might be affected. First of all, the SECURE Act changes the age at which required minimum distributions need to begin. Now, if you don't know what a required minimum distribution is, prior to the SECURE Act becoming law, these mandatory distributions from an IRA or 401k or another retirement account would start at age 70 and a half. Actually, the distribution had to start at the end of the calendar year in which you turn 70 and a half. Now, there were exceptions to the rule, but for most people, that's how things worked. 
Now the age at which you need to start making required minimum distributions has been raised by 18 months to age 72. Now here's what that means. If you're turning age 70 and a half, January 1, 2020 or later, you may now wait until age 72 to begin taking your required minimum distributions. Now there is a still working required minimum distribution exception that remains in place. And if you're not familiar with this, if you don't own 5% or more of a company's stock and you continue to work past the age at which you have to start taking required minimum distributions, you can postpone distributions from that employer's retirement plan until the year after uh, you retire. So that's still there. So if you're working today at age 72, you don't have to take distributions from your employer's retirement plan until such time as you retire. So that's one way to avoid taking required minimum distributions from your retirement account. Now, the SECURE Act also changes the rules regarding IRA contributions. As long as you're working, you can continue to contribute to a traditional IRA regardless of your age. Prior to the SECURE Act, you could not contribute to a traditional IRA once you reached age 70 and a half. So this is the first big change. Now, if you turned 70 and a half prior to January 1, 2020, this does not affect you. So if you were 70 and a half in December of 2019, you now have to take required minimum distributions. But again, if you're age 70 and a half, January 1, 2020 or later, you now can postpone until age 72 and anyone age 70 and a half or older or 72 or older can now continue to contribute to an IRA. So that's good news for many people who are working longer, which uh, we're seeing a lot more of. Now, the SECURE Act also does something else that I won't spend a lot of time on, but it certainly um, uh, is, is something you should be aware of. It expands access to something called a MEP or an MEP. Now, what is this? Well, it's a multiple employer plan. And a multiple employer plan or a MEP is a plan that allows employers to band together and pool their resources to give employees access to retirement plans. And there's also some pretty significant tax credits for employers who'd opt to do that. Now, the SECURE Act also allows employers to auto-enroll employees in a plan at a savings rate of 6% of pay. So in other words, your employer can say you're automatically enrolling in the retirement account and you're automatically putting aside 6% of pay unless you opt out. That is now law. The SECURE Act also allows plans to add annuities as investment options in employer-sponsored retirement accounts. Now, the insurance industry, um, obviously one of the big products of the insurance industry is something called an annuity, lobbied very heavily for the bill. They didn't lobby in secret. They lobbied openly for this bill to pass because annuities can now be offered in employer-sponsored retirement accounts. And the reasoning behind it, the rationale is that we want to give employees access to a guaranteed stream of income when they retire. Now, it used to be that 
an employer would often have something called a defined benefit pension plan. A defined benefit pension plan is the old-fashioned pension that someone might get uh, that pays them so much per month, every month, for as long as they live, and they often have survivor benefits. Well, many, if not most employers that have had a traditional defined benefit pension plan in the past have terminated or frozen these plans and opted instead for a 401k plan. A 401k plan is a defined contribution plan. Well, now, in an effort to give employees access to this stream of income when they retire, annuities are now an acceptable investment option in an employer-sponsored plan. Now, many of you also use 529 plans. These plans were also revised under the SECURE Act. And incidentally, we're going to be talking about the SECURE Act at our upcoming event. Uh, We're going to uh, be out at Sunnybrook Country Club in Granville uh, for a meeting on January the 28th. And we'll talk more about the SECURE Act. So if you'd like to attend that event or get more information, you can go to socialsecuritydinner.com. That's www.socialsecuritydinner.com. And uh, we'll fill you in on how this will affect you and some strategies that have really come about that can be attractive as uh, part of this this sweeping legislation. And I'll talk more about some of those strategies in the last segment of today's program. Now, a 529 plan, if you're not familiar, is a plan, a tax advantage plan that allows for educational savings. 529 plan assets can now be used to pay for registered apprenticeships, homeschooling, and up to $10,000 of qualified student loan repayments, including for siblings. So yes, it can be used to pay off student loan debt. It can also now be used for private elementary, private secondary, or religious schools. Now the student loan part of this, which I expect will get a lot of use, allows for student loans to be repaid for a 529 plan beneficiary of up to $10,000, but an additional $10,000 from the plan can be used to pay off student debt for each of the 529 plan beneficiaries' siblings. So that is also a pretty nice benefit. I'll be talking more about the SECURE Act in the last segment. I'll also be talking about something that could cause your heirs to be paying a lot more in taxes as a result of the SECURE Act. And I'll talk about that in the last segment of today's program, but I'll be back right after these words to have a conversation with Mr. Larry Reed. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me once again on today's program, he was on about six months ago, is Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, I always enjoy uh, Larry's perspective, and I always thoroughly enjoy my uh, time talking with him, and I know you will too. Larry is the President Emeritus of the Foundation of Economic Education. And uh, Larry, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you, Dennis. I appreciate your having me again. You know, I would love for you, before we jump into our topic, uh, which is very interesting, based on an article you just wrote, for our listeners that may not be familiar with the good work that uh, the Foundation for Economic Education does, could you fill them in a minute before we get started? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Uh, The Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE as we call it, uh, is an educational organization. Our focus is on high school and college students. 
Uh, we endeavor to inspire them uh, and educate them on ideas of individual liberty, free enterprise, private property, personal character, and we do that through a very robust website at fee.org, and uh, seminars and programs on campuses and schools and in schools that uh, are going on somewhere in the world uh, virtually every week of the year. Well, terrific, and I'd encourage the listeners to check out FEE.org. It's a terrific site, lots of great articles posted there regularly. Um, and, and Larry, we are celebrating this month the birth date of Edith Caval, and I bet our listeners are wondering, who is that, and why is that important to know? Can, can we start there? Yes, uh, thanks, Dennis. I think this is a great story about a remarkable woman. Any of your listeners who may have been to London and stopped in Trafalgar Square may have seen a beautiful statue of her uh, uh, marking uh, the very day that she was executed by the Germans in uh, October of 1915. She was a nurse, a British nurse, uh, who was uh, born in 1865. Uh, she was 30 years of age before she decided to pursue nursing as a career, and that was because uh, she had just cared for her father, who was quite ill, and he recovered. And that sort of inspired her to uh, get the training she needed to be a professional nurse. And uh, she proved to be an, an exceptional one. She had a sterling reputation for attention to detail, a very congenial bedside manner, and a ferocious sense of duty. Um, in 1907, she went to Belgium and became instrumental in the founding of the first school of nursing in Belgium, and that's where she was when the First World War broke out in 1914. And, of course, the Germans uh, uh, overwhelmed uh, Belgium and took Brussels uh, rather early in the war, and she could have fled back to England, but she didn't. She not only decided to stay uh, in Belgium, but she immediately joined the Belgian resistance, uh, the underground. The Germans didn't know that, of course, but they kept an eye on her as they let her continue to run uh, her uh, nursing school, uh, three hospitals, and, and so forth. But uh, meantime, with the underground, she worked uh, to save about a thousand Allied soldiers from the Germans, getting them from behind German lines often through her hospital and underground and out uh, to safety. And uh, she did that for the better part of a year, nine months or so, until she was um, uh, arrested uh, and then put on trial and uh, sentenced to be uh, executed. And that's what happened to her in uh, October of 1915. So what a brave woman! Uh, yeah. And uh, what's her? What was her uh, uh, family? You said like family background growing up, Larry. What? Uh, where, where did she get such a sense of uh, patriotism and sense of duty? Well, she had remarkably good parents uh, and a very good childhood. They instilled in her uh, ideas of personal integrity and fortitude and. And certainly she needed uh, both of those big time uh, during those months when the Germans uh, occupied Brussels. So she had a very good upbringing. But I, I think uh, perhaps uh, even if she hadn't, my guess is she was uh, a person of solid character in any event. Um, she was known 
uh, throughout her short life as a person who was a, a woman of her word. Uh, she was uh, uh, she faced down challenges time and again and met them every time. She was and, and quite a faithful person. She was a solid Christian who uh, met her fate at the hands of the German firing squad with great courage and um, showed no sign of fear or whatever. You know, you uh, reference in the article, Larry, um, a book that was written about Edith uh, called Faith Before the Firing Squad. It was a book that was published, uh, according to your article, in 2015. And it was interesting because as she was incarcerated, um, awaiting her trial and and subsequent sentencing, uh, she was still sending encouraging words out to her nurses. Yes, she was. Uh, one of my favorite of uh, the many letters that she sent and that survived to this day was one that she sent uh, to a group of nurses back on uh, September 14 of 1915. This is after her arrest and before her execution about a month later. And in that letter, she said, in everything, one can learn new lessons of life. And if you were in my place, you would realize how precious liberty is and would certainly undertake never to abuse it. To be a good nurse, one must have lots of patience. Here, one learns to have that quality, I assure you. Uh, just that little bit of a taste of one letter, as well as so many others she wrote, uh, indicates she was amazingly articulate, too, in both uh, print and uh, uh, when she spoke. You know, uh, Larry, a lot of the the work you mentioned that the Foundation for Economic Education does is with the, uh, you know, high schoolers and, and, and college age um, young adults. And certainly when, when you look at that level of character, it's hard for young people today to find a role model like that. At least that's my take. Uh, do you have an opinion? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And when we find them, uh, either in the present day or from the past, I think we should celebrate uh, them and get their message out and hold them up as the kind of models that we would want uh, our young people to be if ever they were faced with such circumstances, or at least gain some measure of inspiration. Uh, When she was on trial, uh, the prosecution, the Germans, uh, posed uh, a dozen questions to her, and she answered truthfully and boldly. She didn't try to hide anything. Uh, she admitted, yes, she had helped hundreds to escape, and she was proud of it, would do it again. And, uh, uh, you know, that that's a kind of role model that is just remarkable that uh, all of us of any age can learn something from. And uh, your your article, I, I, uh, I have it up in front of me as we're talking here. It's interesting because uh, there was a film made about her back in, uh, I think it was 1939 in your, in your article, and uh, it was widely acclaimed. Um, however, it kind of rubbed Adolf Hitler the wrong way. Yes, it did. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, a year later, a year after that film uh, was made in 1939, Hitler, of course, uh, uh, at the start of World, of World War II, uh, had taken France, and uh, he went to Paris just after signing the surrender uh, that uh, France did uh, to, for Germany. And while in Paris, he ordered the destruction of two particular monuments, both of which were to heroes from World War One. And one of those monuments was one that was erected to Edith Cavell. Uh, Adolf Hitler understood the power of her inspiration and wanted to make sure that people forgot her 
uh, to the extent that he could. But of course, we not only don't forget her, she's now commemorated in many ways and places uh, in her native Britain, all over the continent. Uh, uh, so uh, that was one that uh, Hitler uh, succeeded in for a few moments, but not for, for eternity, for sure. You know, interestingly, you, the uh, statue that you referenced at the uh, beginning of this segment, uh, I, I believe your article states that uh, the words that she spoke to her, the, the chaplain the night before her execution uh, are on the actual statue. And I, uh, I, I thought that that was a, an amazing uh, lesson in forgiveness, those, those words that she spoke. Oh, yes, very eloquent. And those words are as follows. Standing as I do in view of God and eternity, I realize that patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness toward anyone. Well, you know, that what a tall order that would be for any uh, mortal being in a similar situation. But Edith Cavell was a woman of profound faith and confidence, and right to the very end. Do you think, Larry, there's a chance that we could take some of that uh, desire for no hatred and no bitterness and somehow transfer that to what's going on in Washington, D.C. today? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, every day it just seems uh, you turn on the news, on the radio or television, and, and uh, all you hear is vitriol and uh, people going after others because they hate them and, and simply because they have disagreements with them. Uh, that really is a toxin that uh, free people need to expunge from their political system. Otherwise, uh, the end result is likely to be uh, a, a great deal of harm to this country. So I, I wish we could learn from examples like Edith Cavell, be more forgiving, uh, and stop uh, fighting each other as if, uh, you know, the maintenance of personal power is the most important thing in life, because it isn't. And there we've got another minute or so in this segment. Um, in, the, in the work that uh your organization does with uh, young adults. Um, what do you sense? Or do you have a sense of optimism that uh, we're, we're going to get through this period of time and that, that better days are ahead? Or uh, uh, do you sense that uh, we're going to get more of the same? <laughs> well, you know, I'm an eternal optimist, so I don't let any negative development uh, set me back. My, my feeling is that, hey, nobody knows the future. There have been plenty of examples in the past where uh, you know, it was very dark before the dawn, and uh, you know, the good things that happened uh, couldn't have been predicted, and sometimes they happen uh, out of the, out of the blue. I ask a lot of audiences uh, that I speak to, young people in particular, if they're optimistic for society or optimistic for themselves, and I do get more of them who say they're optimistic for themselves than they are than they are for society. But uh, I think if everybody devotes themselves to building a life of solid character, uh, you'll not only be very happy, uh, you'll not regret that, but uh, you can get through even the toughest of times. Well, and I would encourage the listeners as we close this segment to go to FEE.org, that's FEE.org, and uh, Larry's article about Edith Cavell uh, can uh, be found there, and I would encourage you to check it out and read it. Uh, the good news is uh, Larry's going to be joining me for another segment, so stay with us. We'll be back after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Mr. Larry Reed. He is the President Emeritus of the organization Foundation for Economic Education. The website is FEE.org. They do some uh, 
really great work, and I would encourage you to check their website out. And Larry, you know, uh, we talked about this when you were on six months ago, uh, but certainly, uh, I guess from my own uh, perspective, we can't really talk about it too much. Um, there is undoubtedly um, a move among younger people uh, to socialism, that, that they think it might be a good idea. Um, what's behind that and, uh, and, and, and what's motivating them to, to take that position? I think, uh, Dennis, that there are several reasons for that. One is that there's a misconception quite common among young people as to what capitalism really is. And as a result of that misconception, they think of it in a negative way. Uh, many of them think that capitalism means uh, big businesses in particular getting special favors from the government, bailouts, subsidies, protections, uh, things that make it uh, uh, tougher for their competition to deal with them and so forth. And those of us who believe in capitalism are the first to say, wait a minute, we're not for that either. Uh, what we see as capitalism is really another word for free markets, which means a fair field and no favor. It means uh, a situation where uh, private property is respected, uh, uh, the rule of law and private contracts and personal choices and consumer sovereignty, uh, those things rule the day. Prices are determined in markets, not by mandates or by the big guys getting together behind closed doors and trying to fix them and get government uh, to support those fixed prices. Uh, that None of that is capitalism. Capitalism is very different from what a lot of young people think it is. I think the best way to uh, differentiate between capitalism, true capitalism, and socialism is, uh, uh, well, it revolves around one single word, force. Uh, capitalism is what happens when you leave people alone. What do they do? They go about their business. They create things. They trade. Uh, as long as they do no harm to others, I think most people would say, yeah, let them do their thing. Socialism is a, is a system that is a contrivance of uh, usually of academics, you know, in an ivory tower who think they know how to plan other people's lives. And they use the force of government to implement uh, that vision. Uh, the big difference, that difference can be explained this way. If, if you've got a couple of Girl Scouts who come to your door and uh, ring the doorbell, you answer and they say, would you like to buy some cookies? You get to say yes or no. That's capitalism. But if those Girl Scouts show up the next day with a SWAT team behind them and they say, uh, you're going to buy these cookies whether you like it or not, and you're going to eat them, uh, that looks a lot more like socialism. And the difference is uh, force. Socialism is always, arrest, always rests upon force. You listen to socialists advocate things. They never come up with simply a list of, list of suggestions. <laughs> Every scheme they have rests upon the use of force. Somebody's going to get penalized or confiscated from or redistributed in some way because they think they know what's best uh, for uh, other people. You know, Larry, I was reading uh, last week, uh, it was an article published, I believe it was in The Atlantic. Uh, the author was a professor from New York University. I think his name was uh, Thomas Philippen. Uh, I might be getting his name wrong. Uh, but uh, he had said that, uh, you know, the United States and Europe, when it comes to uh, really embracing capitalism, uh, have almost done a flip-flop. And, and he pointed out in the article that it's now faster 
to start a business in the country of France than it is any state in the Union uh, because the, the, these government regulations have created a huge barrier to entry uh, for new businesses, and it's really allowed existing you know, big monopoly-type businesses to um, exist by giving poorer service, charging higher prices. And uh, I guess I'd like your take on that. Are, are we, is that really affecting uh, you know, how true capitalism would work? Yeah, the more things you put in the way of entrepreneurs, especially newcomers, small entrepreneurs, the tougher it is for them to ever get off the ground and challenge the big guys. And the way uh, or ways in which government often does that is such things as excessive licensing requirements or, or just high taxes will do it because the big guys can find their way somehow to either get around those high taxes or they'll pay them. But the small guy who's trying to accumulate some capital, he, he's the one who's more hobbled by a, a, a heavy tax burden than the big guy. So he may never even get off the ground to challenge uh, the big guy. But there's so many other ways from zoning regulations that sometimes are, are excessive and ridiculous uh, to um, uh, the Federal Reserve's playing around with interest rates uh, to uh, all sorts of regulations. There are a lot of ways that government prevents uh, the economy from being vibrant, robust, uh, and uh, a, a playing field for, for lots of newcomers with ideas. I don't know about France. Uh, that surprises me uh, that uh, the gentleman thought that the U.S. was uh, a little more regulated than France. But it is true that countries that we often think of in Europe as being socialist, like Scandinavian countries, really are not. They are uh, comparable to the U.S. in so many ways in their economic freedoms. Uh, Finland, uh, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, uh, on the index of economic freedom, which is a measurement every year about how much capitalism or economic freedom a country has, uh, they're not far from the U.S. They have moved away from socialism. Uh, at the same time, we've uh, moved down the scale a little bit, so, sort of in the socialist direction, but we're still in the top 30, uh, both the U.S. and those Scandinavian countries. So, Larry, where, where do you see this whole movement uh, going? And it's hard to, to have this conversation without talking a little bit of politics. And it seems like uh, we've got both fringes seem to be represented very well in American politics, and there doesn't seem to be a big crowd at you know, what once was the center. And when you've got proposals like a wealth tax and uh, no more billionaires, and uh, I mean, that, that's, that's getting some traction. Where do, you, where do you see this playing out uh, politically? Well, young people in particular are attracted to uh, rhetoric. Uh, but as they get older, uh, reality sort of uh, slams them in the face. <laughs> I can say that not uh, I'm not lecturing down to young people. I used to be one, <laughs> and the same sort of thing happened to me. Uh, you know, socialism sounds good rhetorically because it uses such language as sharing with people, helping people, and so forth. But the rubber hits the road when it comes down to, okay, how are you going to do that? And then when you start to look at the actual track record of, of socialism, it's lousy. I mean, it is just absolutely ghastly around the world and throughout history. The more socialized the country is, the less economic opportunity you have, the more poverty you get, uh, and the less innovation and entrepreneurship you get. So I'm hopeful that this is just a short-term fling that a lot of young people are having with uh, 
demagogic politicians who are slick with their words, but uh, pretty obtuse in their understanding of reality. And with a little bit of time, as young people grow up, start paying taxes and and paying attention to uh, actual reality around them, uh, they're, I think, bound to become less socialist. So I'm just hoping that uh, groups like FEE, the one I'm with, and so many others can continue to educate so as to help them uh, understand these things and move them in the direction of things like freedom, free markets, and private property and personal character. And you know, Larry, you really can't blame young people for wanting something different because uh, I think there was a, another piece that I read recently that when you look at uh, health care costs, when you look at tuition costs, and you, you look at just costs of you know major, what, what you might consider big ticket essentials, they have gone up significantly faster than wages. And you've got a lot of 18 to 30 year olds living at home with their parents yet. So you can't really blame them. And, you know, a lot of this, uh, I guess my opinion would be a lot of this can be pointed back to, uh, to Fed policy. And I guess I'd like your take on that. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, uh, in one sense, uh, Dennis, I, you're right. You can't blame them for having a negative feeling about things like those health care or college costs. But uh, at some point, you can hold them responsible for coming to the wrong conclusions about what to do uh, about it. Uh, I mean, if everything that the government touches uh, be, tends to become more costly and its quality deteriorates, and that helps explain a big chunk of what's happened in both health care and college costs. And that being the case, the last thing you should want is more government in both of those areas. So what we have to do is to explain to students that it was government policy in the first place, from the Federal Reserve and its manipulation of interest rates to uh, the Fed, uh, federal government dumping tons of money into student loans that created this mess and that we need market-based solutions to get out of them. Not, not, uh, there's no reason to look at that track record and say, wow, we need to find another batch of politicians and give them a lot more money and a lot more power so they can help us out of this. I mean, that's ridiculous, but that's the challenge that we have. Well, our guest today has been Mr. Larry Reed. Uh, Larry, always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, love your work. Uh, keep it up, and uh, we hope to have you back down the road. Hey, anytime. Thank you so much, Dennis. I appreciate it, and uh, best wishes to you for the holidays. And same to you. We will return after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks again to Mr. Larry Reed for letting us catch up with him before the holidays and uh, get his take. Always enjoy Larry's perspective. You know, I have been talking about the new law that relates to IRAs and 401ks. It's called the SECURE Act. And in the first segment, I talked about five things the SECURE Act does as far as tax advantage savings are concerned. Change number one, Required minimum distributions from a retirement account like an IRA or 401k now do not have to begin until age 72. Secondly, there are tax credits now for employers to offer plans, and the SECURE Act expands access to multiple employer plans. Third change, the SECURE Act also allows employers to auto-enroll employees in a plan at a savings rate of 6% of pay. The SECURE Act also allows plans to add annuities as investment options. 
and change number five that I talked about in the first segment, 529 plans were revised under the SECURE Act. 529 plan assets now can be used to pay for registered apprenticeships, homeschooling, uh, private elementary and secondary education, and can be used to pay off student loan debt. Now, those all sound like pretty good changes. However, there's one change that you should certainly be aware of, and that is that the new law, the SECURE Act, eliminates the stretch-out IRA that has been used as a cornerstone of estate planning for many IRA and 401k owners. Now, for many of you, this is going to be news because a stretch-out IRA really is not a topic that's discussed until such time as you inherit an IRA, and then hopefully you learn what one is, or more appropriately, what one used to be. Because again, the SECURE Act takes that option away. So the stretch-out basically allowed a non-spouse beneficiary, so a beneficiary of an IRA that wasn't married to the person that passed on, so this would typically be a child, So a child of an IRA or 401k owner had the ability to inherit the retirement plan and spread the taxes on the inherited account over his or her lifetime. So for example's sake, let's just take a 50-year-old child who inherited an IRA from a parent. This 50-year-old could take minimum distributions based on his or her life expectancy, pay a tax on the distribution, but allow the remaining IRA balance to continue to grow on a tax-deferred basis. So you're 50 years old, your mom passes on, you inherit her IRA, you can take minimum distributions, or I should say could have taken minimum distributions based on your life expectancy and pay tax only on the distribution amount, but the rest of mom's IRA continues to grow tax-deferred. Now. This is the impact that that could have. According to the IRS's life expectancy table, a 50-year-old has a life expectancy of another 34.2 years. That means prior to this SECURE Act becoming law, that 50-year-old would have, would, have had, would have been able to take this inherited IRA account balance at the end of the year and divide by 34.2. That's the amount of money they would have to take out of the account the rest would grow tax-deferred. The next year, you would take the account balance, and instead of dividing by 34.2, you would divide by 33.2, and so on. In this way, should the beneficiary elect, the inherited IRA could be maintained for their life expectancy, in this example, all the way up to age 84. A pretty good deal. That's 34 more years on average of tax-deferred growth on a lot of this money. Now, the stretch-out option, what I just described to you, is now history. That's no longer available under the new law. The SECURE Act mandates that inherited IRAs, 401ks, and Roth IRAs be totally distributed within 10 years of inheriting them. Now, that creates several potential problems problems. Many folks have an IRA inheritance trust. This trust is the beneficiary of their IRA. They set it up because they didn't want their children inheriting a lot of money. They didn't want the inheritance from uh, them to their children in the form of an IRA to be subject to 
predator attacks. They were concerned that uh, maybe there was going to be a divorcing spouse. There's a lot of reasons people would set up these trusts. These trusts say that the beneficiary has to take required minimum distributions. Well, if you happen to have one of these trusts now, there is no requirement to make distributions. The only requirement is you have to distribute everything within 10 years of death. So we'll call it the drain in 10 rule. Well, if you have one of these trusts, it could mean that you literally take nothing out and everything comes out in year 10, and now you have to pay tax on everything. And even if you don't have one of these trusts, if you inherit an IRA, you still are required to take all the money out of the account within 10 years and pay the tax liability on all this money. Now, that could result in a large tax bill for a beneficiary, especially if that person happens to be in their 40s or 50s, which they usually are, and that tends to be their peak spending years. So at this point, if you have an estate plan in place or you have an IRA, you're going to want to relook at and re-examine your beneficiary designations. And oh, incidentally, according to the Congressional Research Service, the SECURE Act as a whole is expected to generate $16.4 billion over the next 10 years. So we have some information on the SECURE Act that we'll be discussing at our upcoming event. If you would like to see the event in your area, all you need to do is visit socialsecuritydinner.com and all the information about the event uh, will be there. At the event, we'll be talking about a way to salvage your stretch. There are some other tools that can be used to potentially allow a stretch out like outcome in your situation. So we'll be talking about that at the event. Uh, let me remind you also that you can always go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. We have a lot of free resources posted there as well. Again, for information on our upcoming event, visit socialsecuritydinner.com. That's all the time I have for this week. I hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week. And again, Happy New Year.